I'm Carrie Kaufman, and this is the Nevada Voice Podcast. Public sector unions have been feeling their oats the last few years, ringing up victories amid one stunning defeat last year. Teachers are striking in Chicago as we tape this. Teachers in Nevada avoided a strike and got their column advancement pay with a little help from Governor Sisolak. Unions in L.A. and Oklahoma and Oakland and a bunch of other localities have staged strikes and walkouts. Our guest today, Brad Mariano, says this show of muscle by teachers' unions is the direct result of attacks on public sector unions. Mariano is an assistant professor at UNLV's College of Education. He and his colleague Catherine Strunk from Michigan State wrote about the Chicago teachers' strike last week in The Conversation, and it was picked up by crooks and liars. And he is here now to talk about how the defeat I mentioned earlier might actually have been a victory for unions, and how public sector unions in particular can not only survive, but thrive. Brad, welcome to the Nevada Voice podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here. So I want to uh, talk about the, the Chicago teacher strike, and I want to talk about what Janus is. We have to define that for people. Um, but what is going on in Chicago now that you see is different from previous strikes? So Chicago's a little different in how they structure their school district than other districts around the nation they have what we call mayoral control. So the mayor of Chicago is at the head of that school district, and negotiations happen with the mayor somewhat involved there. What you see with Chicago teachers is a move towards what some are calling social justice unionism, where we're expanding the number of issues that teachers unions are pushing for. For example, in Chicago, this is the first time that we've seen a union and teachers push for affordable housing for their students. That is not something that is traditionally under the scope of normal contract negotiations, Mm -hmm. but something that teachers within Chicago feel strongly about in terms of what's impacting their students. You also see, you know, the district put essentially an 18% raise over five years on the table in front of the teachers. And in other times, you would see unions jump at that. Right. Uh, such a substantial raise. But what we're seeing is more and more of these negotiations all go all the way to teachers walking outside of the classroom. We haven't seen this number of strikes since you know teachers first got the right to collective bargain in the mm-hmm. 1970s. And so there's a whole different climate around bargaining negotiations now. Do the teachers actually have a plan for getting more affordable housing? I mean, like how do they how do they decide that Mayor Lightfoot is is serious about giving giving t- kids or, or doing more affordable housing? I haven't seen a plan laid okay. out in terms of how that affordable housing would play out. And it's also technically not legally within the scope of negotiations. Right. <laughs> and so my guess is you will not see something written in the contract about affordable housing, but you could see still a promise that, hey, yeah, we're going to explore this further. The unions in Los Angeles and Oakland who went on strike also in the last year, in January and February of, of this last year, pushed for a moratorium on charter schools, mm-hmm. also not within the scope of negotiations. And so it wasn't directly in the contract, but they received a promise that the district and the superintendent would push Sacramento, the capital there, and the lawmakers there to 
implement this charter school and moratorium. They did. they did a version of it, um, exactly. Not exactly as the union was pushing for, but they did secure legislation um, in in regards to that charter school. That, uh, that limited charter schools. Right. They didn't Put eliminate them. Put more restrictions them. on them, yeah. Um, so this uh, 18% raise, one of the things that I, I know that, that Los Angeles was looking for, Los Angeles teachers were looking for, and Chicago teachers are looking for, is more school psychologists and more social workers and uh, smaller class sizes, all these things to benefit kids. Uh, and is that, do you see that more and more as part of the, the process, fix our structure? So what we've seen lately is teachers have always negotiated over class size. That was one of the first, what we call bread and butter issues of contract negotiations. But it's these staffing levels in these other areas, in your school psychologists, in your school nurses, um, your school counselors, that we haven't seen unions push for as fervently as they do now. Part of it is a realization that kids need these things. But part of it is also following the Janus case they the changes that that Supreme Court decision brought about makes it harder for for teachers unions to gain membership. Mm. And so when they're able to secure in contracts promises around staffing levels for these support staff positions as well as for teachers, they gain potential new membership as a result of these contracts. And so that also plays a role in terms of why now are teachers unions all of a sudden pushing schools for more nurses and school psychologists and school counselors? Why now? Well, part of it, it's because they're looking to gain membership. Okay, I'm going to go backwards for a second. Uh, we're, we're talking about class sizes and we're talking about adding staff, but there is a teacher shortage uh, some people call, don't call it a shortage. Teachers are being, are, are people are being dissuaded from going into the profession. But there's also a shortage of psychologists and counselors and school nurses. There's a shortage of nurses all, right. uh, all over. Uh, so how do you, yes, you can negotiate that in your contract, but how do you get the people to fill those roles? Right. So it, in terms of the shortage, it depends on where you are. So in large labor markets, uh, like in Chicago or Los Angeles or even in Vegas, you have an easier shot at uh, attracting psychologists and nurses and teachers. That's not to say that CCSD uh, still has unfilled positions, so they haven't filled all their teaching slots. Um, but it's easier to attract teachers here than in some of the rural parts of the state. So when we think about the teacher shortage or the nurses shortage, um, in regards to the teacher shortage, it tends to be in rural locations and in specific subjects as well. In rural Such as math. So math, special education. Mm -hmm. Those are your subjects where you see, and, and specifically in CCSD, that's what we see in those areas. Um, but school districts are still bringing people in for these positions the quality might be suspect. That's the other thing that we, we right. think of in regards to this. We might be finding bodies to fill these spots, but the quality might not be great. Indeed. But if from a union perspective, it is better to have that legal language in the contract requiring the school district to hire these positions um, than not. And so you see that push to make sure it's 
ensconced in these contracts, um, legal language is there, and then we'll work on hiring these positions out. And when they're successful, you have more potential members. Okay, so now let's talk about what Janus is. It is a Supreme Court decision. Uh, Janus was the person in Illinois who was bringing the suit against whom? So he brought it against the state of Illinois. Okay. Yeah. And he was talk to us about what that what the what the lawsuit was about. So first. Mark Janice was an employee, not a teacher. Um, he was in the SEIU there, um, and he felt so. So he was it not was an a, SEIU or AFSCME. Uh, uh, sorry. So he was a. Thank you. He was a <laughs> part of the American Federation of. State and State, federal employees. Federal municipal employees. <laughs> right. Thank you for that correction. It was. I think I got cut up because the SEIU went on strike in Illinois recently as well. Right. So you get those all confused. But yes. Yeah, so he he was a he was a part of that union, and so. Um, the reason why he said he he sued both the union and the state of Illinois, mm-hmm. because uh, in the state of Illinois, as in many places, if you are not a union member, you still had to pay a fee to the union for union services, because the union has to represent all employees in negotiations. And so there was a ruling back in 1977 by the Supreme Court that said that non-members of unions have to pay their fair share. We call these fair share fees. And what that equates to is about 80% of the cost of union membership. So Mark Janis said, hey, it's not fair that I have to pay this fair share fee. And he he contested that on the grounds of free speech. Right. And he said, it's against my First Amendment rights to subsidize a union that I don't agree with. And agree with in terms of politically, because unions tend to be more active from the left. And um, Mark Janis did not agree with their political um, uh, endorsements. Correct. Okay. Yep. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know... The, the union was defending themselves and saying, look, this presents free riding, so, so you can't just garner benefits from the contract without paying your fair share. And two, this is just about collective bargaining negotiations, not about our larger kind of uh, lobbying of state lawmakers for political positions. But again, Mark Janice and his lawyers were saying, well, collective bargaining is political. All union activities are political, and therefore it's a violation of... Um, First Amendment rights. Now, this was not the first, you know, a year before the Supreme Court had considered a very similar Mm -hmm. case in this regard. And with the death of Justice Scalia, that ended in a 4-4 kind of tie and nothing was done. And so um, with the nomination of another conservative justice this round, you know, they, Mark Janus and his lawyers felt like they had a real shot of getting this fair share fee precedent overturned, and they ultimately succeeded. And yet there were a lot of people who thought that uh, Justice Kennedy, this was one of the last decisions he made before he retired, right. would, uh, would side with the unions and with the state. Did you expect that? I actually expected him, um, based on what we heard in Friedrichs versus the state of California, which was the other case, um, I I thought that he would actually side on the case of Mark Janus. So yeah. I kind of expected that to happen. Okay, so now we have this ruling, and, 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 and Janus says you don't have to actually pay dues to a union if you don't want to pay right. dues to the union. So what happened to unions after that? Well, so the cost of union membership in terms of a teacher's individual decision on whether or not to join changes. Before they were making a decision, do I pay 80% of this fee 
Or do I pay 100% and just be a union member? Well, when you no longer have to pay that fair share fee, now you're judging, well, am I going to pay zero or 100% to be a union <laughs> member? And so the thought was that many teachers would make the decision, you know, I want to I save money, so I'm not going to join the union. But it, it's still too early to tell. Um, it's been a year, about a little over a year. But we're not, frankly, we're not seeing teachers resign their membership in mass waves. Um, in some locations, they are. But for the most part, unions are holding fairly strong. And so back to this Chicago strike and other strikes that have been happening or other walkouts even that have been happening, what you're arguing is that, um, that unions are advocating for things like class sizes and other uh, support staff to be hired to make their union more attractive to join. Yeah, that's partly it. So so a lot of the rhetoric around the Janice case was like, this was going to kill unions. Mm -hmm. They survive on these non-member fees. They can use these fees to grow. They could never use them for political for, for lobbying, but they could use them for other things and grow, and grow their union. And use other money for their right, lobbying. Right, right. correct. Uh, but I kind of countered that and said, look, what it's actually going to do is require teachers unions to work a lot harder to attract and retain their membership. And so we could be headed into this new era of political activism where unions are working a lot harder. And so one of the ways that they do that is is in the contract negotiations. So that's partly why we're seeing more and more of them go to strikes. And if they can secure in these agreements, these staffing levels, which will bring more staff into school districts, they can have a potential plethora of new members coming in, this windfall of new members coming in as they negotiate for these staffing levels. What we don't realize is that teachers unions represent teachers, but they also represent school nurses and school counselors um, and, and psychologists. All of these folks are a part of the union. And so as, we as they negotiate these staffing levels, they have more membership to grab. We're talking to Brad Mariano about unions. Uh, Brad is a assistant professor of education here at UNLV, uh, and uh, Chicago is right is on strike. Las Vegas CCSD avoided a strike largely with the help of our governor, Governor mm -hmm. Sisolak. Um, but they weren't asking for these kinds of things. They were asking for money, and that was that was pretty much it. They were asking f that the people who who um, uh, did their extra work, extra training, got their advancement and, and moved up one column in the pay, in the pay scale. Um, and they got it. But so what is it that, that kept Las Vegas from really demanding? A, we have incredibly large class sizes and we have uh, in, incredibly stressed teachers and not enough uh, psychologists and nurses and, and social workers, what kept them from demanding what Chicago is demanding? Well, I have to say, I cannot remember if this was a full contract negotiation or what we call a reopener negotiation. Ah, uh, yeah, I think it was a reopener. So yes. I think if my memory serves me, it was a reopener. So they could only negotiate over compensation. Ah. Um, so these reopener negotiations happen kind of in between contract cycles, mm -hmm. and they'll only open a portion of the contract for negotiations. And so my, I think the scope in terms of what they could push for was limited. But strategically, they wanted to wait until after the legislative session was open to negotiate these pay raises, because then we have a better idea of what is coming down at the state level in terms of funding for funding salaries. 
Now, in this case, CCSD was a major part of this last legislative session. So many uh, discussions around how do we find enough money to make up the school district shortfall. So we, what the governor and the lawmakers thought they had achieved that. <laughs> and then as we head into negotiations, it came out that we have 1,000 educators of our approximately 18 to 19,000 teachers who qualify for what we call a column movement. And so they had completed some professional development units and on the teacher salary schedule they would be able to move columns and receive a fairly sizable increase for for teachers well the school district said we're going to freeze those raises now the union had already made some noise during the legislative session that if there were any budget cuts as a result of funding shortfalls that hit the classrooms they were going to go on strike so it comes out as a result of these negotiations that they weren't going to be receiving the raises that they thought and so the strike rhetoric came back, mm -hmm. and there, it was quite um, loud, <laughs> interrupted some board meetings. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the school district said, well, actually, we have the money yeah. to, to fund these raises. So oh. that, in my opinion, puts them in a, in a tough, tougher spot right. on the next time they negotiate the contract. See, and, that, and I, I agree with that and, and think it's kind of interesting that the legislature and the governor thought that they had actually funded CCSD to what they needed. This happened in 2017 also. After the legislative session, uh, CCSD said, oops, we're actually $60 million in debt. And, and, I, and my question then is the same as my question now. Well, why didn't you just tell that to the legislature? Uh, they say they did this time, actually. Uh, but but it's a trust issue, right? If they're saying, hey, no, we, you know, we need to eliminate the dean's positions because we are potentially $34 million in debt over a two-year period, and then they go back on that, and then, uh, and then there's still that debt hanging out there, and they're like, oh, and suddenly we have money to pay the teachers. It doesn't really engender a lot of trust that they're telling us the truth about what their finances are. That's absolutely right. So I've studied contract negotiations in California and Michigan and school districts there. And, and as I interview and talk to people about these negotiations, the biggest determinant of what happens in that contract is obviously the budget. And often when school districts and unions are stepping into these negotiations, um, the district is often making budget projections. So how much money do we think we are going to have to negotiate over? That's generally done by a chief budget officer who's crunching some numbers. Sometimes that's shared with the union and sometimes it's not. But the union is also making their own calculation about how much money they think there is to negotiate over. And so when you end up in a position like this where we say we don't have the money, we don't have the money, and then all of a sudden the money is there, in subsequent rounds of negotiations, it's you often lead the union to seeking for hidden pots of money out there. They believe that the district is hiding money from them, and so they're going to push harder and harder next time. And so the smoothest negotiations I see is when those budget projections are spot on mm. year after year after year, and they're transparently provided to both sides of the negotiation. And so we can get out of the way of this mistrust about how much money there is and really start tackling the issues because we know exactly how much money there is. So in 2017, I gave Jason Gowdy, who was the CFO of uh, Clark County School District, I gave him a pass because he had just started. And I was like, okay, maybe you just figured this out. But 
now he's been on the job a couple of years. I would expect those numbers to be correct. How many years do you think he's going to have to come out with a spot on numbers for people to trust him? Oh, it takes a while. You know, the districts that I've studied, you know, it's at least a decade. And and they have periods. They, these districts that I've studied have had periods in the past where they, they, they haven't had great budget numbers or they've fallen short. Um, and so it takes... You know, the institutional memory for these types of things mm-hmm. are long. And so it takes several years in a row of building up that trust again with only one year that could wreck it. <laughs> and wreck it for good. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about unions being able to attract members. And, um, you know, we live in a, a marketplace society. There are a lot of groups that do a lot of things to attract members. What else can unions do to make it so that a teacher, a new teacher, wants to join? Especially in a state like, like Las Vegas or a state like Nevada because we are uh, an open state. You don't have to join any union you don't want to. Right. So um, unions have traditionally provided benefits to their members. So they'll provide some types of liability insurance. Um, they will provide often health insurance uh, in some regards or health insurance supplements for their members uh, because they'll already receive health insurance through the school district. They've, they'll provide other benefits with local deals within the community. You know, they'll reach out to partners and provide discounts to teachers and whatnot. But the biggest thing that they could move to doing more is, is in terms of improving educator practice and providing more supports themselves in terms of professional development for uh, new teachers to make them feel more supported in the classroom. So some unions do that. Um, The American Federation of Teachers, one of the big unions, has a professional development program that they've had for years, but they're scaling that up in some locations. Mm. And so uh, doing more around improving educator practices might be one more way for teachers to feel supported by their unions and want to join. So we don't have an AFT here in this state, right? No. So our our state is, in terms of an AFT chapter, we don't. Um, we have the National Education Association, whose our state affiliate is affiliated with the National Education Association, but Clark County, County Educators Association is not. So they separated from the National Education Association a few years ago. Um, they are kind of wholly an independent union, kind of unique in that regard, where they're not affiliated with a national mm-hmm. union or a state union. They kind of do their own thing. Is there anybody? I mean, I know there was a, there was a break-off union, which is the Southern Nevada Education Association. Education Association. That's rather small right, right. now. Are are they affiliated with the larger union? Yes, they are affiliated with the state affiliate of the National Education Association and the the national. Um, Education Association, yes. Okay, so let me see if I got this right in terms of unions right. here in Nevada. Yeah. Okay, there's the there's CCEA, the, the Clark County Education Association, which is uh, led by John Valardita mm-hmm. and, uh, and was the leader in the call for a strike. How many members do they have? Uh, well, so I'm not... The, I, my, I think their membership is around... 11,000 of the 19, 18 to 19,000 teachers okay. within the school district. So yeah. roughly a little more than half, 60% sounds yeah. like. Uh, so that's the biggest union. Uh, then there's the Southern Nevada Education, Education Association that's run by Vicki Crydell right mm-hmm. now. And... Um, and it's pretty small. It broke off from the the CCA about a year or so right. ago, uh, and 
then there is the Nevada State Education Association. Right, and that's the the affiliate with the National Education Association. And what does the state do that's different from what the other unions so, do? So these organizations are extremely democratic. So what you often see at the, at the local level is a union with a union president, and you often have site representatives that are within each school that are kind of monitoring the implementation of that collective bargaining agreement. And then they elect delegates up to the state level to provide a state level governance. And the state union often provides support for collective bargaining negotiations. They provide legal consultation. They coordinate the kind of state level lobbying strategy with lawmakers there. And they also provide a connection to national who has kind of its own level of bargaining support kind of lobbying support um, for their state affiliates. So the state union is supposed to be supporting the local union. Correct. Uh, I'm not going to get into whether they are and what the relationship right. is because that's a really fraught thing. Is there a union in uh, the Reno, northern Nevada area? Yes. Okay, what's that called? Well, so I'm not sure the name on that one, but okay. I, I believe they're NEA affiliated okay. up there. Uh, okay, so let's talk about the future of Nevada. So this was a – this union – this union threat, strike threat that we had a few months ago um, was was over just column advancements, just money. It was a reopening. Uh, when this contract is over, what do you foresee that, that teachers are going to start asking for now that we know what happened in Chicago and we know what happened in L.A.? Yeah, so we have a few moving parts here. Mm -hmm. We have a budget system, a school finance system that is completely being overhauled over the next few years. And how that shakes out still remains to be seen. Indeed. Though we've, we've kind of seen that legend. So that's going to really shape kind of how much money is flowing into these school districts to negotiate over and could provide some uncertainty with regards to what that budget looks like in, in contract negotiations. And two, unions like in Clark County and elsewhere, are looking to these other strikes and seeing what are educators winning. We have the whole hashtag Red for Ed movement on social media that's gained steam. And so you could see Clark County kind of ride on the coattails of what's been happening elsewhere and really push for some of these things. We know our class sizes are high. Mm -hmm. And so I would not be surprised if that's a major sticking point in the next round of negotiations, as well as improving salaries, but also the support staffing um, for school psychologists and nurses. I think we would look to see a similar playbook laid out in Clark County. But again, um, and, and I would imagine this is going to be contentious because of what happened in this mm -hmm. last round of negotiation. The institutional memory is long for these types of things. And so um, I would look for a tough fight in this next round of negotiations when that contract reopens. We have been talking to uh, Brad Mariano, who is a professor, assistant professor at UNLV College of Education. He wrote something uh, this past week on uh, teacher strikes. It isn't just about kids. It's about union power, too. That's in Crooks and Liars, and we're going to have a link to that on our website, nevadavoice.org. Uh, Brad, thank you yeah. for talking with me today. It's good Appreciate to be here. It. Yeah, thank you. The Nevada Voice is a non-for-profit journalism organization running under the fiscal sponsorship of the Moon Ridge Foundation. You can become a member of the Nevada Voice at any level to support us. Go to NevadaVoice.org. Nevada Voice is bridging the education divide in three ways. We are holding town hall meetings every quarter to look at big issue, mostly financial issues. 
And we are holding monthly forums around Clark County to talk about the intersection of social issues and education. And we are doing these Nevada Voice podcasts every week. We would love to have you be part of the podcast. Go to NevadaVoice.org or you can email me at Carrie at NevadaVoice.org. Thank you for listening. Pass it on to your friends and colleagues and maybe even your enemies. This is the Nevada Voice podcast. We'll see you next week.